Hi, my name is Rachel, and I work at the Birth Center up on Pinkett. So growing up, I went to an apostolic church a few times. I don't really remember any of it. I was just kind of hanging out um, in the seats, not paying attention to the sermon at all. I feel like I lived my high school and college years in like really early high school when I was really young, like 13, 14. So I did all the horrible, you know, drinking and partying and drugs and all those things when I was that age. Um, and it just led to really, really horrible things, things that I had to pay for and go through. I felt very hollow and shameful in general just for, I guess, the person that I thought I was because of the choices that I made when I was younger as a teenager. So Robert Hill gave me invitation to the Easter service and I didn't go but I ended up giving it to Nathan my brother so Nathan went to the Easter service and then he just immediately got plugged in started going um, got connected to the MC group all of that and we would have long conversations about you know just like big worldview conversations but um, yeah when he got baptized it was just like a whole different a whole different experience for some reason that just like in combination with hearing Josh's sermon and just like the experience of going to the church and singing the worship music, it was like what, whatever needed to click, clicked. Yeah, about a week after um, I was saved, I had a phone call with Josh because I filled out the connect card the day that I went to the first service and Nathan was baptized and I was just telling him kind of like what I had been experiencing, what was going on, you know. Nathan's baptism, all that stuff. Um, told him that Colin and I were living together. Yeah, Josh recommended that I move out. Um, and I was really upset when I heard that. But that just didn't cross my mind. And as soon as he said it, I knew I was going to and I knew it was the right thing to do. I think our relationship was just um, completely different for a lot of reasons. You know, we stopped being intimate, I moved out, and it was just. Yeah, it was just a lot different than what we were used to. I got plugged into um, the sheriff's MC group, so I was going there and I just had a whole new purpose. Um, and it was for God and not for myself anymore. And getting baptized was huge. Um, I think it was about a month after we were saved, we got baptized at the church. And then a month after that, we got married at the church. Jesus did all of this for me. Now what can I do for him? I literally gave him my life. That didn't mean just part of it or some parts of it or, you know, only things that I felt like doing or, you know, really wanted to do, but all of it. Well, I think that is worth a big round of applause. Yeah. Um, my name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, that video just, I mean, perfectly encapsulates what we're about as a church. Man, we are about seeing lives changed by the gospel. And that's what you saw in Rachel's story. Her life has been totally transformed, and that's what God does. He takes people from being spiritually lost to being spiritually leading. And that is what gets us up in the morning. That is our mission as a church. That is our bullseye. And man, I'm so, so excited about what God has done. And man, Rachel's life and Nathan's life and Colin's life. And man, there's even more to that story than we can even tell in a three-minute video. Uh, but man, God is so, so gracious, and we are grateful for that. 
Um, last week, when you were here, we gave you this booklet, okay? So if you didn't get one of these booklets, you can grab one on your way out. We'll have them at the door. This booklet is a resource we put together as part of our Deep and Wide initiative, okay? Our Deep and Wide initiative. And what we told you last week is that, man, as a church, we want to go deeper and wider in this next season, okay? We want to go deeper in discipleship. We want to go wider in mission. We want to grow in sacrificial generosity in response to the gospel of God's grace. And if you were here last week, we, we shared what's been going on at our church for the, the last couple of years as we've pursued church uh, health. God has blessed us with church growth, and we're in a unique season where we're out of space and we're at capacity, okay? So we're, we're mostly out of space in our auditorium. We're definitely out of space in our parking spots. Some of y'all are like, I parked at the mall, you know? It's like we are we are, are pushing the limits of this facility. So we've been looking, and we've been praying, and we've been planning for, man, our first church home, and God in his kindness has opened up that opportunity for us. So we are under contract on a 10,000 square foot building on 1.65 acres at the intersection of Westfield Road and 29 North, okay? It is just two miles from where we are right now. It's three miles from the Rotunda UVA, and it's close to the intersection of 250 and 29. So really, whether you're coming from Zion Crossroads or Crozet or Greene County or somewhere else, it's easy to get to, okay? It's a, it's a strategic building. It's a strategic location, every sense of the word, and we have it under contract, and we are really, really excited about that. And I told you last week to get the ball over the goal line to transform that building into a church, we need to raise $250,000 in one-time gifts above normal tithes and offerings by April 15th, 2022. And you might say, why April 15th, 2022? Because our close date on the building is May 4th, 2022, and so we just need some time to get all that together. And if we're able to do that, man, we can transform that thing, man, from a uh, what it currently is, which is a snow and ski shop, a snowboard and ski shops. So if you've been, ever been to Freestyle Adrenaline Sports, that is the building that we're buying. So uh, if you love Freestyle, I'm sorry, I didn't make them go out of business. They decided to, okay? And uh, so that's where, that's where we're going to be. So you can have good memories there and keep coming to our church. Um, and so we're going to transform that from a retail store into a church building. So we're going to have a two-story kids wing. We're going to have an auditorium that seats 375 people. Lord willing, we're going to have a mom's room in the back for all you moms. Uh, we're going to have a, a space for our prayer team to gather, man. All these things are going to facilitate the ministry that uh, we are already doing. And so we gave you this book because this book just puts some, puts some stories and some pictures and some stats around what God has done here over the last three years. So, man, if you didn't get one, I hope you'll grab one. Just use it as a way to thank God, to pray, and to keep the initiative on your mind, okay? So that's the first thing we gave you. The second thing we gave you was this commitment card, okay? It was this commitment card. And the reason we made this commitment card was clarity, Okay, we love clarity as a church. We think that clarity creates unity. So we want to be really clear about the two goals that we have in this initiative, and this card helps keep that in mind, okay? Goal number one is 100% participation, okay? Our primary goal is that every person who calls Center Church home Man, would engage in this process, and every single person who calls this church home would make a fresh commitment to discipleship, mission, and generosity in this season, okay? Over the next five weeks, we're looking at five parables of Jesus, and man, I'm just praying that every single one of us would make a fresh commitment to that in our lives. And man, we launched this initiative last week. I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit nervous, right? It's like this whole thing, and there's a video, and a book, and a commitment card, and so I was a little bit nervous. And so I just asked some people this week, like, man, how was it in your MC? You know, like, how's it, how's it going? And man, I just heard some of the most encouraging stories. So Man, I, I heard about one guy who said, man, from the, the sermon last week, and you talked about taking responsibility for your marriage, he's like, that's me. He's like, man, our marriage isn't bad, our marriage isn't on the rocks, but man, I feel like our, our, I'm sort of maintaining our marriage, and I really want to thrive in our marriage, and I want to pursue my wife, and man, I want to build a healthy marriage that goes the distance. I thought, praise the Lord, right? Here's a guy that's saying, I'm going to take responsibility for my marriage, right? I, I talked to a mom who said, I just really felt, man, called by God last week to be more engaged in my kids' discipleship. Like in the sermon, just feeling like God is calling me in this season to double down with my children, to, man, invest the word of God to them, to spend time with them, to pray for them. And I just thought, man, praise the Lord. 
I heard about one of our MCs who had a, a long conversation about the difference between safe generosity and sacrificial generosity. And what's the difference between those two? And man, how does God want us to think about the resources that he's given us? And I just think, man, praise the Lord that we're having these meaningful conversations in our church and that people are, man, growing and going deeper and wider. We're really excited about the building and I hope you are too, but we're equally as excited about what God is gonna do in and through us as a church when it comes to discipleship and mission in this season, okay? So goal number one is that everybody would participate, that it would be 100% participation. And goal number two is that we would raise $250,000 in one-time gifts, Above tithes and offerings by April 15th. I'm like a machine. I know I just say the same thing over and over again. Um, so we can transform uh, that space into a church. And here's the thing. $250,000 is a lot of money, okay? And if you don't think so, see me after the service, okay? It'll be great. Uh, but no, $250,000 is a lot of money. Um, but I told you last week a couple of stories of how, man, God has been going before us. And we've already seen, man, people making generous sacrificial gifts just as like a down payment of God saying like, hey, I'm in this. I, you know, I want to encourage your faith. So I told you about that last week. Well, um, on Monday, I get a text message, and it's from a leader in our church, man, great, great leader, great family, says, hey, give me a call. And honestly, anytime you launch an initiative that's about raising $250,000, and then you get a text message that says, give me a call, you're like, oh, no. You know, you're like, is this going to be a bad phone call, whatever? So, you know, a little bit of fear and trembling. I call my, call my buddy, uh, and, and, and we talk. And I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but he basically just says, look, man, um, we, we love this church. Like this church has meant so much to us. We just absolutely love being part of a church that is committed to evangelism and discipleship. He's like, we love it. And I'm expecting a performance bonus from work in, in the ballpark of $10,000. And if that comes in, we've decided we're gonna give the entire thing to the Deep and Wide Initiative. $10,000. So that's, you know, if you wanna text me on Monday, I would love to have that conversation. Um, and, and so, man, I, I'm, I'm so excited. And, and, I, and I've got, I had another story in my transcript to tell you. I'm gonna tell you next week, so come back. Okay, and it was all loaded up, and then I get on my computer today before the, before the service to review my notes, and I have an email. And it's, it's an email from a dad in our church who just recently came to Christ through, through the ministry um, of our church. And this is what he said. He said, man, my family is so excited to be a part of Center Church. We are so excited to be a part of Center Church, and we, we are so excited to see our children grow up in the faith here. He said, because of Center Church, I am actively reading the Bible for the very first time in my life. And he said, he said this. He said this, God is doing so many things in my life that I often get emotional when I think about it. He said, my family has decided to rearrange our budget so that we can contribute to Deep and Wide. And I just said, praise the Lord. <laughs> guys, guys, the common thread is, man, God using this church to change people's lives. I mean, it's like Rachel's story. It's like all these stories that, man, God is using this church to change people's lives. And man, it's just people wanting to respond in generosity and say, man, I wanna be a part of this initiative. That's what, that's what Deep and Wide is about. It's about, man, us reflecting on all that God has done in our lives, man, growing in discipleship, growing in mission, man, and taking this important step forward as a church to move into this exciting opportunity, okay? Uh, I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. So I just, wanna, I just wanna thank God publicly for all that he's already done. And then we're gonna jump into Luke 15 together, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the grace that you've shown me and that you've shown every single person here. Uh, God, I just pray that as we think on that grace, as we savor that grace, that it would, uh, it would just change us and lead us to want to respond, Lord, in discipleship and mission and in generosity, and that we would see more and more stories like Rachel's of, man, lives just being totally transformed by your gospel. So, Lord, as we look at Luke 15, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe what you have for us in this text? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15. So we're in a series, a sermon series that we're calling Deep and Wide, and in it, we're looking at different parables of the Lord Jesus. I told you last week, Jesus Christ was the greatest teacher who ever lived. And one of his favorite ways to teach was by using parables. And parables are concrete stories that communicate spiritual truth. They're they're concrete stories that communicate spiritual truth. And last week, we looked at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And the big takeaway, if you couldn't be with us, was that, man, God has been generous to us. And in response, we want to be generous stewards of our lives. That God has been generous to us, and and so in response, we want to use everything that he's given us, our time, our talent, and our treasure, for his glory. We want to deepen and develop and double it for his glory so that, man, when Christ returns, we are excited to see him, and we can say, Lord, I used my life for your name. Thank you for your grace, okay? Well, that that was last week. This week, we're looking at three parables, but they're all connected. Three parables that are all connected in Luke 15, and the connecting theme is mission. Okay, the connecting theme is mission. So if you have to leave early, I'm just going to give you the punchline right now. Here's the big idea of Luke 15. God loves to reach lost people, and so should we. God loves to reach lost people, and so should we. And if you grew up around church, I'm afraid that this is my, might be what you're thinking right now. Yeah, 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 I've heard that before. But we need to take just a second and think about how incredibly unique that idea is to Christianity. Look, that is not what any other religion in the world says. Every other religion in the world is about man earning his way up to God. It's the five pillars of Islam. It's the Eightfold Path. It's the Book of Mormon. Choose your pleasure, whatever it is. It's always about man and woman earning their way up to God. And Christianity comes along and says, no, man could never earn his way up to God. So God actually came down to man. You see, religion is all about man's pursuit of God, but the gospel is about God's pursuit of man. And so when I say something like, God loves to reach lost people, we should be like, what? Like, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean God loves to reach lost people? Right? It's a totally unique, utterly, utterly uh, uh, Christian concept that we often kind of take for granted. But people didn't in the first century. People didn't in the first century. People were very confused about this idea, which is what Jesus addresses in Luke 15. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to learn three things about God's heart for people as we walk through the three parables in Luke 15, okay? So look at verse 1 with me. It says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the crowd that followed Jesus was comprised of two very different groups of people. You had rebellious people and religious people. You had the sinners and the scribes. Okay, so let me describe to you a little bit who the sinners were. Well, the rebellious people, the sinners, they were all about self-discovery. And the religious people, the scribes, they were all about self-sufficiency. The, the rebellious people, man, they were progressive, they were liberal, they adopted Roman values regarding religion, sexuality, and politics. The religious people, they were traditional, they were conservative, they rejected Roman cultural values, and they thought of themselves as very moral people. And these two people did not get along, and yet both of them were following Jesus. Well, in verse 2, the religious crowd gets upset, and they criticize Jesus because he was hanging out with sinners. And they believed it was inappropriate for a Jewish rabbi to be cultivating fellowship with sinners and tax collectors. So, man, they were drawn by, by Jesus. They were drawn by his authority. They were drawn by his teaching, but they were confused by him. Because in their minds, when the Messiah came, he was going to come, and first he was going to pat all the religious people on the back. And he was going to say, way to go, guys, way to be faithful. Then he was going to judge all these people and then overthrow Rome. Okay, that's what the Messiah was going to do. And Jesus is not doing that. In fact, Jesus is eating with the very people that he's supposed to be judging. 
And they don't understand this, and so they criticize him, okay? So the religious people were following Jesus, but they were confused by him. On the flip side, the rebellious people were following Jesus, and they were confused by him as well. Because here's what they thought. Well, there's only one of two options. Either God hates me because of my lifestyle, or God affirms my lifestyle. Those were kind of like, you know, they had left Jewish society behind because they wanted to live in a particular way, and Roman society said that was fine. So they figured there's one of two options. Either God hates me because of the way I'm living, or God doesn't care, this is fine, and he affirms me in the way I'm living. And Jesus didn't do either of those. So on the one hand, Jesus said, like, hey, I love you, come and eat with me. On the other hand, he said, you need to repent or you're going to be judged for your sins. And they didn't know what to do with that. They were like, I didn't know there was a third way. I thought it was just like these two things. You see, so we have religious people and rebellious people, and they're both confused. They're both confused by who Jesus is and what kind of God it is that he is teaching about. And so Jesus is going to tell these three parables to help all of them and all of us men understand the heart of God for people. All right, so this is what Jesus says first in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So imagine you have a hundred sheep and you lose one of them. Jesus says, hey, wouldn't you, wouldn't you leave the 99 behind to go and pursue the one lost sheep? And Jesus kind of assumes that we would agree with him, and he assumes that his listeners would agree with him, but it doesn't make any sense. He thought, this is a terrible plan, right? Like, mathematically, this makes no sense. Why would you leave behind the security and the financial stability of the 99 sheep that you have? Why would you leave them in the open country where they could be attacked, where they might wander off to go after this one stupid sheep who walked away? Like, why would you do that? The only reason you would do that is if that one sheep was very significant to you, right? I mean, the only, if, sheer mathematics, it makes no sense. This is a bad shepherd, Unless that one sheep is of such value to you that it is worth the risk and the discomfort of leaving the 99 behind and going and pursuing that one lost sheep in the open country. And here's what's fascinating. When the shepherd finds the sheep, he's not angry with it. He doesn't scold the sheep. He doesn't hit the sheep with his staff. What does he do? He picks the sheep up. He puts it on his shoulders. He walks it back to the flock, and he calls his friends together. And he says, hey, let's have a party. I found my lost sheep. Verse 7, Jesus gives us the interpretation. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus says, guys, this parable isn't about sheep. It's about people. I'm the kind of shepherd who goes after the one lost sheep, and there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't think that they need to. This leads us to the first thing that we learn about God from this passage. Number one, God pursues us. God pursues us. Or God came after us, and we should go after others. We'll get that updated for the 530 service. Here's the thing. If you think about it from a cosmic perspective, and this is what Jesus did. Think about it. Jesus was in heaven. He had the 99, right? He had the comfort and the power and the glory of heaven. And yet he looked down and he saw rebellious sheep who had wandered from the flock on their own willing decision. And he left heaven and he came to earth to find those lost sheep. Who were the sheep who wandered away? Who were the sheep that were lost? You and me. Isaiah 53, 5 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. You see, Jesus left the 99 in heaven to come and find you. 
And when he found you, he wasn't angry with you. He didn't scold you. He picked you up. He put you on his shoulders, and he carried you back to the flock of God. You see, every other religion in the world says if you work hard enough, you can find your way back to God. Christianity says you were hopelessly lost. You could never find your way back to God, so at great cost, Jesus pursued you and carried you home. Why in the world would Jesus do that? Because you are very significant to him. It's the only, it's the only reasonable answer. You must be so significant in the eyes of God, you, that Christ was willing to leave heaven, to leave the comfort of the 99, to leave power, to leave glory, and to take on suffering. That is how significant you are to God. And if you think about it, this parable is both humbling and encouraging at the same time. It's humbling because it says, you're lost. <laughs> like, like, you're lost. You're not self-sufficient. You don't have this whole thing figured out. You can't find your way back to God. You're so lost, the only way you're getting into heaven is if Jesus comes and finds you. It's a pretty humbling thing to say, right? And, and we kind of buck against that. We maybe wouldn't say that out loud, but we think, I'm not lost. Look, I went to a good school. I graduated from the University of Virginia. I'm a, I'm a smart person, right? I graduated from a good school. I've got a good job. I make six figures. I'm involved in the community. I'm not lost. And what the scriptures say is, it doesn't matter how much you have, spiritually lost is spiritually lost. It doesn't matter if you work at the law firm or the fast food restaurant, you're lost. Jesus is like, they're just different categories. No amount, no amount of degrees from impressive institutions changes your spiritual condition. No amount of dollars in your bank account, no amount of prestige in the community, no amount of you know, family unity, no amount of anything changes your spiritual condition. You are lost, and there's nothing you can do about it. The whole point of being lost is you can't find yourself. This is very humbling. And if we internalize that, do you know what it does? Man, it really topples ego. It really topples pride, and it topples contempt. If I believe that I was so lost that Christ had to come and find me, how could I ever look at someone else with contempt? So if I'm in the kingdom of God, it's not because I found my way there. It's because Jesus came and found me, put me on his shoulders, walked me home. Right? So when we really internalize that, it should create like a really deep humility and a really deep graciousness and gentleness towards other people. So it's, it's profoundly humbling. But at the same time, it's profoundly encouraging. Because it says, man, you're lost, but you're also significant. You're so significant to God that Jesus Christ left everything to come and find you. Man, how incredible is that? So if you believe that, it just, it just absolutely precludes self-loathing, right? It gives you a foundation to build your self-worth upon that is steadfast. Man, the God of the universe cares so much about me that, that he left heaven so that I could be found. I matter. You matter. Not because you're rich, you're smart, or you're funny. You matter because Jesus came to find you. That is the core truth of this first parable. God pursued you. And in response, you should pursue others. God pursued you, and in response, you should pursue others. Look, if discipleship means becoming more like Jesus, and if pursuing lost sheep is a huge part of who Jesus is, then we can't say we're growing as disciples if we're not also growing in a passion and a burden for reaching other lost sheep. Right? If we're going to grow as Christians, if we're going to grow as disciples, we have to grow in mission. 
And sometimes people misunderstand this. They think, I'm growing deep in discipleship because I'm reading theology books. Uh, Praise God for theology books. I'm growing deep in discipleship because I've memorized 60 Bible verses. Praise God for that. I'm growing deep in discipleship because all these things. I always ask the question, well, like, have you shared the gospel recently? And it's like, well, no, that's not, that's evangelism. That's not discipleship. But it's like, no, no, no. If, if being a disciple means becoming like Jesus and a huge part of who Jesus is and what he came to do was to reach lost sheep, then you are not that much like Jesus until you are seeking after lost sheep. Right? We are most like Jesus, perhaps, when we are leaving comfort to seek after lost sheep. But it's really easy to forget that. Personally, as a church, because mission requires sacrifice. Mission requires sacrifice. It means you invite your coworker to church and you risk being rejected. It means you initiate conversation at the playground when you'd rather just look at your phone. Right? It means you give up comfort. You give up ease. You give up what you would like to do for the sake of reaching other people. I think about um, Jenna Stanley. Jenna is one of our college students who is right now in South Asia as a missionary for six months. Man, she, she gave up what was comfortable. She took a semester off of school. She's in a culture she doesn't understand. She's trying to learn a language that she doesn't understand. She left her family and friends behind. She had to raise money. Why did she do all of that? Because Jesus pursued her, and now she wants to pursue others. We think this way as a church. Okay, this is just like core to our DNA. We have four values. One of those values is we love to reach the lost. One of the primary reasons that we moved to Charlottesville to plant this church is that there are so many lost sheep in this area. If the stats are true, then 91% of people in our community are disconnected either from Christ or his church. 91%. That's a nine. And this came home to me personally when we moved into our first townhouse, when we moved to town. There were 18 townhouses on our street, and best we could tell, there was one other Christian family on the street. So two out of 18, that's 11%. So that's actually beating the average a little bit. Now, there were 340 townhouses in that community. So if you do the math, that means that 300 of those townhouses were lived in by lost sheep. 300. Now, now you apply that to your apartment, to your neighborhood, to your dorm room, to, man, your office, to where you work out. There is a massive need in our community for Christians and churches who will pursue lost sheep like Jesus pursued them. And I'll just suggest to you, if you hear those statistics and you think there's no way that that's possible, there's no way that 90% of our community is disconnected from Christ or his church, it could be that you spend most of your time with the 10% that aren't lost. And because of that, you think, like, no, everybody here is saved. Like, everybody here is a Christian. It's like, man, you just got to get out of your comfort zone a little bit. You got to get out of your bubble a little bit, man, and just, like, look at the reality of our community. That's the kind of church we want to be. Man, God pursued us. Now we want to pursue others. It's the first thing we learn about God's heart. Here's verse eight, second thing. Or what woman, said Jesus, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. So each of these coins was worth about a day's labor. Okay, so most people lived day to day back then. So this is a lot of money. So the emphasis is on how valuable this coin was. So Jesus said, hey, if a woman lost a coin that was that valuable, what would she do? He says, well, here's what she would do. She would light a lamp and she would diligently seek the coin until she found it. And that phrase, diligently seek, literally means in Greek, tear the house apart, okay? 
It's like she is like pulling cushions off of couches, okay? She's flipping over mattresses. She's overturning rugs. Like she is totally disrupting her house, totally disrupting her day to find that one coin because it is so important to her. Uh, It reminded me of something that happened to me this week. Um, Our youngest son, Charlie, had this really nasty virus last week. And so I think it was like Thursday night. It's like two in the morning. We're up with him because he's coughing and we're trying to, you know, we're trying to comfort him. And so and Meredith's with him upstairs, and, and she's like, hey, can you go downstairs and, like, get some, you know, the baby Motrin or whatever to help? And so, oh, yeah, so it's 2 in the morning, so I'm, like, half awake. So I go downstairs, and I don't know about you, but finding anything in our medicine cabinet is kind of a nightmare. Um, and so it's at 2 in the morning, I'm, like, pulling stuff out of the medicine cabinet. And to make matters worse, um, Motrin has a product for, like, every life stage. You know, it's, like, baby Motrin, toddler Motrin, children's Motrin, young adult Motrin. It, like, goes up through the whole thing. Um, and so I'm, like, it's, like, 2 in the morning. I've got, like, multiple bottles of Motrin. I'm trying to figure out, like, which one is he supposed to have? And you got to find, like, the tiny syringe to get out. Like, it was miserable. It is not what I wanted to be doing at 2 in the morning. I wanted to be in my bed. Okay, I wanted to be in my bed asleep, but I stood there miserably and I tore that medicine cabinet apart. I sought diligently for the baby Motrin and I found it. Okay, why did I do that? Well, I did it because Charlie's that important to me. Like Charlie is so significant to me that I was willing to disrupt my night. I was willing to disrupt my comfort. I was willing to disrupt that medicine cabinet until I found what he needed. Okay, that is the idea of what this woman is doing. Verse 10, just so, Jesus is going to give us the interpretation, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, Jesus is saying, guys, this parable isn't about coins. This parable is about people. Jesus is saying, I'm like that woman. I'm like that woman. She disrupted her house to find the coin. I disrupted heaven and earth to find you. Which leads to the second thing that we learn. Number two, God disrupted himself to find us. God disrupted himself to find us. I mean, has anyone disrupted their life more than Jesus Christ to find someone that was lost? I mean, think about it. Have you ever been on a mission trip? If you've ever been on a mission trip, you know how disruptive they are, right? Your schedule's disruptive. You're on a different, you know, time zone. Your diet is disrupted. You're eating all kinds of food you've never eaten before. Uh, your, your smell is disrupted. All kinds of smells you never heard before. You're, you're just, you just feel disrupted. You don't speak the language. You don't know the culture. Everything about a mission trip is disruptive. Now imagine being the Lord Jesus who left the glory of heaven and took on flesh as a Galilean peasant. I mean, you want to talk about disrupting your life to find what was lost. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he did for you. That is how significant you are to God. That Jesus Christ disrupted everything to come and to find you. He tore up the house of heaven to find you when you were lost. And again, if discipleship means becoming more like Jesus, then here's the question we need to ask. Are we willing to disrupt our lives to find others? Are we willing to disrupt our lives to find others? Are we willing to rearrange our schedules, our commitments, and our budget to reach lost people? That's really what this commitment card is about. It's about rearranging our budgets so that more lost coins can be found. I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'll say it a million times, the building isn't the goal. Seeing lives changed by the gospel is the goal. More stories like Rachel's is the goal. The building is a means to the goal. And the building will help us reach more people. Because here's the thing, when you invite your coworker and they finally come, do you know what you really hope they can sit in? A seat. Right? You're like, that would be great, Josh. I would have a lot more confidence in inviting people if I knew they'd have somewhere to sit. 
right? You simply cannot reach people that you can't see. It's just, a, it's just, a, it's just true, right? Like, I'm not going to come back to a church if I go there the one time and it's like awkward. I know we have nowhere to sit and I like feel like, oh, like, like, so we just need more space to welcome more people. So getting into this building will help us reach more people. But here's the thing. It'll also help us reach different kinds of people, right? Studies have shown that both Christians and non-Christians are most likely to attend a church service on Sunday morning than any other time during the week. So being able to move back to Sunday morning just gives us an opportunity to reach different kinds of people in our community. Um, some of you have loved being on Sunday evenings. I'm like, that's okay. Your team Sunday evening, right? Yeah, see, we got the people here. Um, do you know who really loves Sunday evening services? Uh, and you're going to start laughing. you like, that sounds like our church. Uh, college students, young adults, and young married people. Just look around. Hey, man, we got people in the back, right? But, but do you know who Sunday evening services are really hard on? Families, right? Because like, do you know what you call six o'clock? You call that meltdown hour, okay? It's like, trust me on this. It's why 80% of our families come to this service, right? It's, like, it's just hard with kids. And if you've got school-age kids, it's like Sunday evening, you're doing homework, you're packing book bags, like you're trying to, man, you're trying to get ready for the week. So by moving to Sunday morning, not only will it give us an opportunity to reach, man, more people, it'll, it'll give us an opportunity to reach different kinds of people. Different kinds of people in our community that right now, we're just not that great at reaching because of the, the time that we meet. Again, the building isn't the goal. The building is a means to the goal of reaching more lost coins and finding more lost sheep. So the question that, that we have to ask is, man, are we like this woman in the parable? Are we willing to disrupt our lives to find those coins? Are we willing to rearrange our budgets? Like, man, the, the guy in the story at the beginning said, are we willing to rearrange our budgets and, man, not do something we'd really like to do this year because we want to give to this so that we can get into the building. I mean, that's the, the question that we have to wrestle with. And um, honest moment here, if you're anything like me, here's my first instinct on this, okay? And I'm like the pastor. Here's my first instinct. Man, I really like this church. I hope I like this church. I'm the pastor, right? <laughs> Sometimes, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, really, I really like this church. Man, I want to help. I want to do something. But here's, like, here's a number of reasons why now is not a good time, right? Now, it's just not a good time. It's not a good time to give. But I should do something. So, man, what can we give that won't disrupt our lives, Right? I mean, that, honestly, that is my gut response to the Deep and Wide Initiative. And I, maybe you can relate with that. Maybe that's how you've been processing so far. So he, here's, the, here's the question. Instead of asking, what can I give that won't disrupt my life? Here's the question I'd offer to you instead. This is the question that my family is asking that I'm encouraging people to ask. Instead of asking that, ask this question. What's it worth to reach one more person for Christ? What's it worth to reach one more person for Christ? Is it worth driving that car for another couple years? In my family, is it worth putting off the, the basement renovation that we want to do? Is it worth eating out less? Is it, is it worth taking a, man, a less exciting vacation? I don't know. What, what is it worth it to us to reach one more person for Christ? And I know that's a pretty direct question. And I know you're probably not used to people talking to you like that in church, right? Welcome to Center Church. Um, but, but isn't it true that someone disrupted their life to reach you? Like, isn't that true? Like, maybe it was your parents, they disrupted their lives. Maybe it was a youth pastor. Maybe it was a friend in college. Right? Someone disrupted their lives to reach you, to reach me. And the question is, will we disrupt our lives to reach others? Um, if, if you, you know, maybe you came to Christ through our church. Maybe you've grown significantly here at Center Church. Do you know why? Because 37 people disrupted their lives to move here. We had 37 adults who moved from North Carolina, changed jobs, sold houses, uproot, uprooted their entire lives, planted them here in Charlottesville. Why? To seek lost sheep. 
and to find lost coins. We exist as a church because 37 people disrupted their lives. Can I be really candid with you? Our ability to keep reaching lost sheep and finding lost coins has everything to do with our willingness to continue to disrupt our lives to do it. The moment we stop disrupting our lives for lost people is the moment we stop reaching lost people. And so what I hope we see in this parable is the heart of God is that he disrupted himself so that we could be found. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to disrupt our lives to reach others. So that gets us to verse 11, where we, Jesus is going to tell his last parable, which is the most famous parable in this chapter, and maybe the most famous parable in history, okay? What is often called the parable of the prodigal son, which is a very bad title, okay? Because there are two sons, and that's the whole point of this parable, verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons. The younger son represents rebellious people. The older son represents religious people, okay? And if you're anything like me, you can relate to both of them. <laughs> verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So culturally, the son basically said, Dad, you're better to me dead. You're better to me dead. I don't want your presence. I just want your stuff. I, I want your property without your authority. So go ahead and divide the inheritance now and give me what I have coming to me. And some of you dads are like, yeah, I'll show you what you got coming to you, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is highly offensive. I mean, this is just the younger son saying, I don't want you, I just want your things. And if we're honest, we often treat God that way. Like we want the gifts of God, we want the things of God without the presence of God or the authority of God. So I want sex, but I, I don't want to have sex in the way that he's called me to have it. I want money, but I don't want to treat money in the way that God has called me to treat it. Right? We, we can often find ourselves identifying with this rebellious son who thinks that true freedom is found away from the father's presence, away from the authority of the father. We can often feel that same way, that man, true freedom, real life is found out there in the world away from all of the restrictions of the Bible. Now, what's amazing is that the dad did what he, did what he asked. I mean, the dad gave him what he wanted. He divided his property. Verse 13 not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So the son gathered his money, and he went away to sin. He went away to sin. And this, this is what we often do, isn't it? And we go away to sin. And some of us maybe go away to the basement, go away to the bonus room, maybe go away on a business trip. And for a lot of us, what did we do? We went away to college. And it's like, man, I'm out of my parents' house. I'm out from under the rules. Man, I'm just going to live it up. I'm just going to satisfy all of my desires. That's what this young guy did. And he found what he was looking for. And, and you probably have too. He found food. He found drink. He found friends. And he found women. And the text says that he lived recklessly, which means he lived without considering the consequences. He just satisfied every single one of his longings and his desires. And, and many of us have been there. You see, this young man was on a path called rebellion, and every path leads somewhere. Verse 14 is where it led for him. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So much so that he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. The, the phrase there is literally connected himself to or submitted himself to. The idea is enslavement. Who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and yet no one gave him anything. You see, rebellion feels like a party at first, but it ends in death. 
It feels like freedom at first, but it ends in bondage. This guy was partying like a rock star until he squandered everything and a severe famine hit. And he found himself in bondage. And this has happened to some of you. It's happened to me. Man, at first drinking felt fun, but now you can't stop. Right? At first sleeping around felt really pleasurable, and now you're, and you're filled with regret. At first, career at all costs felt ambitious and exciting. Now you are chained to your email. And you can't engage with your kids. You can't engage with your spouse because you're just always ding, 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 ding. What's going on? I got to respond. I got to respond. I got to respond. Career at all costs. And at first, that website felt like a release. But now you can't stop going back. You see, whenever we walk down the path of rebellion, it always leads to a pigsty. Whenever we walk down the path of rebellion, it always leads to a pigsty. We end up in a place we never intended to be, doing things we never thought we'd do. That's my story. That was this guy's story. I wonder if that's your story. If so, verse 17 is really, really hopeful. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It says the son came to himself, which means he got to the point where he said, this isn't what I was created for. This isn't what I want my life to be about. C.S. Lewis famously said that God whispers to us in pleasure, but shouts at us in pain. Just pretty accurate, isn't it? It's like, man, when things are going well, when you've got a good job, a good marriage, and, and good friendships, like, we, I don't know, we tend to not think about God that much. But it's when things get hard, it's when life gets painful, when things fall apart, that we tend to be more prone to seek the Lord. This young man experienced pain, and it brought him to his senses, and God may be doing that in your life right now. He may be using a painful breakup, a really challenging job transition, or man, a life-changing medical diagnosis to draw you to himself. Now, what's interesting is that the younger son still didn't understand the gospel. You see what he does? Notice what he said. I will arise and go to my father. That's good. I need help. I think God can help. Okay? I've sinned against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Okay, that's good. Good sense of humility and repentance there. Treat me like a servant. Basically, I'll work off my debt. Hmm. It appears the younger son actually jumped from rebellion all the way over to religion. He missed the gospel entirely. He, he was, okay, I was rebelling. Oh, man, this isn't what I wanted my life to be about, so I'm going to jump over to religion. I did this as a teenager. I was living rebelliously. I got to a point where I was like, this is not who I want to be. This is not what I want to be out. So I got really serious about church. I got really serious about Jesus. But I actually wasn't a Christian yet. And I've seen this happen with a lot of my friends, okay? I'm 34 years old, so I've now got friends that have done the rebellious years of college and young adulthood, and they're now shifting into the religious years of the suburb. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, I'm 35. I can't be going out downtown anymore, okay? It's like, all right, I need to get married, settle down, have some kids, coach a little league team. You know, it's like, it's like I need to be respectable. What's happened? We've just gone from rebellious living, jumping all the way over to religious living. And that might be you. That might be you right now. You, maybe your life has not gone how you want it to go, or you found yourself living or doing things that you never thought you'd do. And you say, okay, I need to get my act together. I need to get back in church. I need to stop these relationships. I need to stop these habits. But you're still operating like, man, if I work hard enough and I say I'm sorry enough, then God will bring me back. 
You see, what this son didn't understand and what I didn't understand at the time and what maybe you will understand for the first time today is that the Lord is far more gracious than you dream. Look at how the father responds in verse 20. And he, the son, arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Leads to the third thing that we learn about God. God loves to welcome sinners home. God loves to welcome sinners home. The son goes back, so what did the father do? Did he stand on the porch with his arms folded, scowling, thinking, there's that rebellious son of mine. Yeah, he better come back. I'll teach him a thing or two. Man, did he stay distant and emotionally detached from his son who had betrayed him and publicly shamed him? No. The father saw him from a long way off. The implication is that the father every day went to the highest point of his property and looked as far down the road that he could see and every day prayed, maybe this is the day. Maybe this is the day that my son will come walking up that road and he'll finally come home and this was the day that it happened. So what did he do? The father wrapped his garments around himself and he ran to greet his son and when he got to his son, he embraced him and he fell on his neck kissing him. Look, this was totally out of the ordinary and totally socially embarrassing for this man. This was an old wealthy man. How many old wealthy men have you seen running? You're usually like, is there a fire somewhere, right? Like, like it's, it was, it was social, socially awkward to, today. It was definitely socially awkward then. It was a shameful thing for this father to do. So why did he do something so dramatic? Because he was so glad to see his son. That is how significant that son was to the father, and that is how significant you are to your heavenly father. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, cuts him off, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So the son expressed genuine repentance. How did the father respond? I love this. This is the gospel. First, the father said, bring the best robe and put it on him. This would have been the father's robe. This would have been a special robe that he wore to events that he was presiding over, a very expensive, pure robe. He looks at his son, he says, you're defiled, you're, you're, you're muddy, you're disgusting, you've been working with animals. Bring my best robe, my pure robe, my glorious robe, and wrap it around him so that no one sees his filth anymore, but they see my righteousness and my purity. This is a picture of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, we've been living in the pigsty of the world. We look and we smell like sin. We're filthy. We know it, and God knows it. And then in response to simple repentance and faith, you know what God does? Suddenly, he takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and he clothes you in it. And he wraps the righteous robes of Jesus around your shoulders. And when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees the best robe imaginable, praise the Lord. He doesn't just take away your sins. He also gives to you righteousness. That's what the father does for the son. He says, come put my best robe on him. Second, the father says, put a ring on his finger. This would have been the signet ring, the family ring. It operated like a birth certificate in those days. It proved that you belonged to the family and you could conduct business on the family's behalf. This is a picture of spiritual adoption. God says, look, I'm not only going to forgive you, I'm going to give you status, authority, and responsibility in my family. But you're, you're not coming back as a servant, you're coming back as a son. Third, the father said, put shoes on his feet. Gosh, how poor do you have to be to not have shoes? 
right? We don't know if his shoes wore out or if he had to sell his shoes to make this journey home. But man, his son gets home, he doesn't have any shoes. And so what does the father do? Man, he took care of his son's practical needs. This is a picture of God's provision in your life. When you were an enemy of God, you could not expect any special provision from him. You couldn't. But if you are a son or daughter of God, you can now expect him to know and to provide for your daily needs. You see, the the younger son hoped to become a servant, but through the grace of God was reinstated as a son. So let me just ask you real personally, do you feel like a servant or do you feel like a son? Do you feel like a servant or do you feel like a son? A servant has to work hard to keep his standing. A servant can get let go, can get fired if he doesn't perform well. But a son cannot. If you feel like you have to perform to maintain, to maintain God's approval of you, then let me just encourage you that the gospel is so deep and the gospel is so wide that your position in the family is secure. God loves to welcome sinners home. I love what happens next, verse 23. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. That's for all you vegans. And let us celebrate, eat and celebrate. It does not say bring the seasoned kale and eat it. Anyway. (laughs) For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We love you if you're a vegan here, okay? Um, And they began to celebrate. Okay, the fattened calf was the prize of the entire herd. It probably would have fed between two and 300 people. And so the father throws a massive party, a massive party to welcome his son home. Guys, God loves it when sinners come home. He loves it, and we should too. It's why we celebrate and clap for baptisms. We're not like, hmm, he's been baptized. No, it's like, yes, he's home, yes, like we're rejoicing. Man, it's why we cheer and clap, and we, and we raise our hands when we're singing about Jesus' victory over sin and death, because God loves it, and God throws parties when people come home. And God loves it. And remember, Jesus is talking to sinners. And this is what he's saying to sinners. Look, this is who God is. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how long it's been, man, if you will repent, God wants to welcome you home. He's not angry with you. He's not scolding you. He wants to throw a party. And I would say to you right now, maybe this is the first time you've been in church in a long time. Maybe you feel like, Rachel did in the video, just I'm too far gone. I'm ashamed of, of my life. And God is like, I want you to come home. He's not angry. He's not scolding. He's been waiting on the front porch, straining his eyes to see that day when you're going to come home. And if the, if the story ended here, it'd be really, really great. But Jesus isn't just talking to sinners. He's also talking to the scribes, to the religious people, to the churchgoers. And so he keeps speaking to them in verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And you know how religious people feel about dancing. And he called one of the servants... <laughs> And asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So I would describe the older brother as religiously lost. He was around the father's household, but he was not in the father's house. This is me for a long time. I was in church, but I was not in Christ. And that might be your story as well. And the older brother didn't, didn't like forgiveness because he didn't think he needed it. And he didn't like it when grace was extended to other people because he didn't think that he needed grace. And he had all the characteristics of a religiously lost person. He was bitter, he was angry, he was resentful, he was judgmental. And here's the incredible thing about this story. You ready? God loves to save religious people too. 
He loves to welcome home rebellious sinners and religious sinners. Look at verse 28b. His father came out and entreated him. His father's throwing this massive party. He's presiding over this incredible party, and he leaves. I hate leaving parties. And yet the father leaves the party. Why? Because there's one, there's one person who's very significant to him who won't come in. So he humbles himself for the second time in this story, and he goes out of the party to this older son to beg him to come into the party. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you notice the older son didn't even call him dad? He just says, look, I've served you all these years. You haven't given me anything. You see, religious people want the gifts of God without God too. They just have a different approach. They figure if I keep the rules, if I go to church and I say my prayers, then God has to bless me. Which is why one of the saddest things I've seen is that when tragedy strikes a religious family, they most, almost often become extremely bitter and they stop going to church. Because what they think is God didn't keep his end of the deal. That I went to church so that you would bless me, you have not blessed me, and so I'm out of here. And if you've ever been angry at God because he didn't give you what you thought you wanted, man, you're like me. You, you have that religious spirit. Verse 31, and the father said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the story ends. The story ends on a cliffhanger. The son who left the family is back. The son who stayed is now outside. The rebellious son repented and was welcomed home. Will the religious son repent and be welcomed home? That is what Jesus left his crowd to ponder. Guys, God loves to welcome sinners home, both rebellious and religious, and that's our vision as a church. We want to be a welcome home church, a church that loves to reach the lost. Guys, God loves to reach lost people, and so should we. That's what this chapter is about. And you see that most clearly, I think, when you, when you see all three parables together, because all three parables have something that is lost that needs to be found. Okay, there's a shepherd, he finds a lost sheep. There's a woman, she finds a lost coin. And you get to the third parable, and you're like, you went after a sheep and a coin, why is no one going after the son? It's like, where, why is no one going after the son to go and find him? Because it was the older brother's job. Culturally speaking, it was the older brother's responsibility to go and to pursue a wayward younger son but he didn't want to go. He preferred being comfortable. He preferred staying with the 99. He didn't want to disrupt his house. He didn't want to give up his comfort. So he said, man, just let that, let that lost sheep wander. It was his own fault anyway. What's so powerful, so when you think about it, Jesus Christ is the better older brother. He said, I'm going to search for you and I'm going to find you no matter what it costs me. I'm coming to earth. I'm going to live a perfect life so that you can have my righteousness imputed to you. I'm going to be forsaken by my father so that a signet ring can be placed on your finger. And right now, Jesus is preparing the most massive party that you have ever imagined in heaven called the marriage supper of the lamb. And when, when we get to heaven, we will join with sons and daughters and we will celebrate because we were once lost, but now we're found. And we were blind but now we see. When we see Jesus Christ going into the far country, sacrificing, disrupting his life to find us, and it leads us to worship him 
and it fills us with the desire to help others. Would you bow your heads with me? I just want to give you a little bit of time to process and to respond. Some of you might be like the younger brother. You might be living in rebellion. You might just be here because one of your friends is getting baptized. I don't know. And I just want to encourage you with the words of, of John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God is on the porch, straining his eyes, waiting for you to come home. He's not angry. He's not scolding. He's got his arms open. Today could be the day that you come home. Maybe you're here and, and you've been in church for a long time, but you don't really have a passion or a concern for reaching lost people. You think it's inconvenient. Maybe, maybe you feel more contempt than concern. And I'll just encourage you to think about the heart of Jesus Christ for you. He left heaven and he went into the far country so that you could be in the family. And just let that soften you and give you a heart for reaching others. Take a minute, process, let the Holy Spirit speak to you, and then our band will lead us in response.